This morning we're going to read, uh, be reading through and looking at the first two chapters of this book of prophecy. So while you're finding your way there in your Bible, I want to give you just a brief summary of what's uh, going on, what's happening with Micah was active as a prophet. Uh, this book was written uh, somewhere in the 700s B.C., right on the tail end of a season of stability for the nations of Israel and Judah, but looking very quickly at a season of, of turmoil. Micah was, writ- was writing during a time of, of peace and relative prosperity. However, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah have suffered through poor leadership and they're facing difficult times. Micah was written in the same time frame as the book of Isaiah, and the prophecies of both of these books focus heavily on the coming destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and the exile into Assyria and then eventually into Babylon for the people of Israel and Judah. And so while this exile and hard times are, are on the horizon, as the book of Micah opens, things for Israel and Judah seem to be okay on the outside. The people are at peace, they're comfortable, they're content with how things are going, but not everything is as it seems. The people of Israel and Judah, while they're living in comfort and peace on the outside, are suffering from a cancer that has been bubbling under the surface for years. And if you've read much of the Old Testament in your life, or if you've been around for a bit, you can probably guess what's coming. The plague that constantly eats away at Israel is rearing its head again. They're following the pattern of their ancestors. So at this, this time of, of peace leads them to contentment. And that contentment leads to complacency. And that complacency leads them to forget. Forgetting leads quickly to idolatry. So as we'll see in these first couple of chapters of Micah, the people of God have forgotten the God of his people. And they're forgetting they have sought comfort in the worship of other gods. They have turned to idols. And it's in this setting that the prophet Micah comes to warn God's people to turn away from their carved images and return to the one true God. The name Micah means who is like our God. And God has called this man Micah out to, to cry out to his people and point them to the sovereign Lord and remind them that there is no one like Yahweh. The book of Micah has three major sections that all begin with a stark warning of coming judgment. But they end with just a glimmer of hope. And as the book progresses, those glimmers of hope become brighter and brighter as Micah points forward to the coming Messiah. So this morning we're going to look at the first section which covers the first two chapters. So the question that Micah is trying to answer throughout this entire book, throughout all three of these sections is, is who is God? Who is like our God? And the answer we find in this first section is that God is our shepherd king. So with all this in mind, let's read Micah 1 and 2 together. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Meresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, 
and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on, the, on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zainon do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the, harness the steeds of, to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Meresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Meresheth. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in, their, in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take them away. You take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about an utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, you, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. In each of these chunks of Micah, I hope you notice a pattern. There are two messages that God has charged Micah with giving to his people. And the first message is a message of, of warning, a message of warning them of impending judgment, a message warning them of coming destruction. Remember that the people hearing this message of judgment are living completely carefree right now. They're experiencing financial success. They have one of nothing. They are experiencing freedom from oppression and hardship. 
They are right in the middle of a season of calm and stability. They're comfortable. Everything is great. In the words of the Lego movie, everything is awesome. They have no reason to fear. They have no reason to worry. But then Micah comes with this terrible message. Judgment is coming. But in order to introduce the judgment that is to come, Micah begins by reintroducing the people to their judge. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under, under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. In these verses, God is described as the judge who comes down to tread upon the high places of the earth, but he's also the witness against the people. So not only is he judge, he is the witness. The Lord in his holy temple has seen the sinfulness of his people, and he is about to get up from his throne and execute judgment. He's not just looking down. He's about to come down and show his power. Do you remember what it was like when you were a kid and your dad would get out of the recliner at the end of a long day? He's worked all day, he's tired, you and your siblings are arguing in the next room about something silly. You hear that recliner groan as he lets the feet down and he starts to get up. It's, that's, that's when it got serious, right? He's, he meant business. That noise was significant enough for me to spark fear in my heart as a kid. The only sound that instilled more fear was the belt getting loosened because we knew what was coming after that. In verse 3, Micah says that the Lord is coming out of his place. He has witnessed their sin, and now he's coming down the hall to tread upon their high places. In verse 4, Micah expands on this, and he tries to communicate the sheer magnitude and power of God. The mountains melt under him. The valleys split open. Like wax in a fire or water rushing over a waterfall, the power and judgment of God will wash over this nation. This is a, a powerful word picture of just how strong and mighty God is. The mountains that the people would have to climb for worship would be melted to nothing before God. The mountains they might run to to seek refuge in times of hardship or war would be destroyed. What they look to for comfort and safety would be completely annihilated. There is nowhere that they could hide from God's judgment. There would be no safe place. Another interesting word picture here is that the high places of the earth that Micah refers to in verse 3 was another way of referring to the temples of idols. Many times they would construct these temples on the top or on the side of a mountain. And so these high places became sacred ground in the worship of these gods of the people. So not only is God treading on the mountains themselves to show his power and dominion, but he is completely destroying the dwelling place of these idols, showing his authority over all things. In verses 5 and 6, Micah tells us that this problem is, is completely pervasive. The sin of idolatry wasn't just confined to a few people or to a certain family. It had infected the entire nation, both kingdoms. And because the sin was pervasive, the judgment would be too. Let's read verses 5 and 6 again. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All of the house of Israel and the high places of Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem, would experience God's wrath. Micah says God will make these places a heap. They will be nothing but a trash pile. 
Their foundations will be uncovered. Nothing will be left standing. And then we see in verses 7 to 9 that Micah gets specific. He puts a magnifying glass up to their sin. Look at those verses with me. All her carved images shall be beat to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Carved images, idols, prostitution. These are the sins that that plague this nation. And in reality, all these sins boil down to one thing. It was selfishness. Everybody was out to make themselves comfortable. Everybody was seeking their own desires, their own pleasure. Let's take a step back for just a minute. If we're going to take from this passage all that we need to this morning, we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. It's probably easy for us to dismiss these sins. I don't have any carved images in my house. I doubt you do either. We're not going to the temple of a foreign god worshiping through debauchery or other things that are obviously wrong and sinful. But let's remember where this cycle started for this people. This is where it ended. Idolatry, carved images, worshiping other gods. But where did it start? Contentment, complacency, forgetting. We may not be guilty of full-blown idolatry, but we're sure guilty of this at times. Look around you. A lot of our modern worship is designed for our comfort. We sit in comfortable seats. We've got five heat and air units in this room alone just to make sure the temperature stays in a certain range. We started worship at a set time that wasn't too early. We didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn, but it's also not too late. Nobody's going to be eating lunch at 2 o'clock today. I think we'll be out of here by then. We are a contented people. We are content with the status quo. We are content to keep things the same. We are content not to rock the boat or make too many changes. And maybe part of that is fear of what might happen. But just like this nation, a large part of this fear is because we don't want to be discontented. We don't want to be uncomfortable. What if God doesn't care nearly as much about our comfort as we do? What if God actually wants us to be uncomfortable so that we become more like Jesus? Are we willing to do that, or do we want to just keep up with the status quo? Here's the problem, church family. This cycle never stops at contentment. We're all messed up. We're sinners. When we linger in contentment, it will lead us to complacency. We will be loyal to complacency in our comfortable seats. We'll get apathetic. We'll get lazy. I'm talking about myself, too. Here's the deal, guys. I know full well it's hard to keep up the energy, right? When you come home after a long day at work, does anybody ever really feel like doing the dishes or laundry? We just want to grab a cold glass of tea and take off our shoes and kick back a little bit. But worshiping God and serving God and following God is not a passive activity. It takes action. It takes work. We can't just sit back and let it happen around us. That's true when we gather in this room together. That's true when you worship as a family at home. That's true when you open your Bible on your own. Trying to worship passively is like the kid who sleeps with his head on an open textbook trying to absorb all the information while he sleeps. It just doesn't work. Eventually, this contentment and this complacency, this apathetic approach to worship, it leads us to forget. You forget your purpose. You forget your place in this life. You forget the one who created you and called you out to be a part of his family. You forget who God is. 
Remember what the name of Micah means. Who is like our God? This entire book is about trying to get the nations of Israel and Judah to remember who God is. That's exactly why we're looking at it today too, 2,700 years later, because we so easily forget. We forget God's power. We forget his goodness. We forget his compassion. We forget his love. We forget what God has saved us from. We forget what God has saved us to. Who is like the Lord? But this people, they forgot. And we see Micah's response in in verse 8. He roams the street lamenting and wailing. In the same streets where this people were used to hearing the ecstatic cries of, of pleasure and parties, they now hear the wailing of a funeral. In the same city where they would seek out pleasure and comfort, they now hear the death groans of jackals and ostriches. I've never heard an ostrich mourn, but I can't imagine it would be a pleasant experience. In Psalm 30, verse 10, David says that God has turned his mourning into dancing. But now in this passage, it's the opposite. God has taken their dancing and celebrating, and he will turn it into mourning because of the coming judgment. Cries of joy and glee will be turned into wails of desperation. And then in verse 9, Micah provides us with maybe the most depressing statement of the entire book. Her wound is incurable. This cancer isn't just in the lands of around Judah. It isn't just a plague of other nations. It has come to Judah. It is knocking on the door. It has reached the gate, and it has invaded the minds and the hearts of God's people. Judgment is coming. Their complacency and their forgetfulness has caused them to completely abandon the God that has rescued them from slavery and oppression time and time again. The God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who gave them a king to lead them, the God who called them out of all nations to be his people, and they just walked away. After all that he had done, they abandoned him. And in the next few verses, Micah gets even more specific. In verses 10 through 15, he calls out 12 different cities. Again, this wasn't confined to one family or one group or one town. The heart of idolatry was pervasive across the entire nation. Let's read those verses again. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your, your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Hazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Israel. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give party gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Agazib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah, to the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. In these five, six verses, Micah calls out 12 different cities, and he uses several word plays on the names of these cities to reinforce just exactly what they were guilty of. And the interesting thing about some of these cities, though, is that their idolatry wasn't just carved images or in foreign gods. For some, it was their, it was their wealth. For another, it was their military prowess. For others, it was their history and significance. Some were guilty of worshiping carved images and other gods, and some were guilty of flat-out worshiping themselves and looking at their own strength and their own power as the thing that could save them. It's easy for us to say we have no graven images. But church, we've got some of the same idols. The common theme of these and all other idols is that the heart of idolatry 
is looking to something besides God to place our faith and hope. These people trusted their wealth, their power, their status, their industry, their resources, their reputation, but they forgot to trust in their God. What about us? What about First Baptist Church, Carl Junction? Are we more concerned about our reputation, our resources, our building, our significance in the community, our budget, our pet ministries? Sometimes our idols don't carry the name of a foreign God. Sometimes the idols carry the name of the church. If your faith, if your hope is in your name, being on a church membership role or some leadership position or standing on a committee, then brother or sister, you got an idol. If you're more concerned with how your neighbor sees your community involvement for the sake of your own reputation, then you got an idol. How do we know if that's true of us? We're going to come back to this in a bit, but there's an easy way to tell. Who does your service and ministry point to? If it points to you, or even if it points to the church, it's an idol. Our first vision statement as a church says this, we exist to glorify God above all else. God's name matters more to us than our own. We've got to point people to him. If our focus is on our reputation or who we're perceived by the community or by our neighbors, we're missing the point. One of the biggest indictments of many ministries across our country is the lack of clear gospel proclamation. There's nothing wrong with giving food or clothing to those in need. There's nothing wrong with showing compassion to those who are suffering. Those are good and noble things. Those are often necessary things. But church, if we don't tell them why we do these things, then our true motivation is not care and compassion for them, but it is to serve the idol of our own ego and to make ourselves feel better and look better. If we care about worshiping God and making his name known, then we better be willing to speak his name to others. We can't forget who God is or what he's done for us. A key part of remembering is telling others about what God has done for us. It's usually easy for us to remember those monumental moments in our life. If we carried the microphone around this morning and asked all the married folks how you met your spouse, we could be here for hours hearing some amusing, entertaining, maybe a little sappy stories. But if we asked every parent what it was like to hold their baby for the first time, we'd all be ooing and aahing with smiles on our face and maybe a tear in our eyes, right? But for those of us who have been saved by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and rescued from the sin and the death it brings, the most monumental thing that has ever happened to you is the salvation that was bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. When was the last time you told somebody that story? When was the last time you bragged on your king for how he saved you and rescued you from your idolatry and from your selfishness? Maybe some of us in this room today have become content. Maybe we're complacent. We're probably forgetful. The first step to helping us remember might be to start telling that story again. Here in the last verse of chapter 1, Micah begins to reveal part of the solution for the nations of Israel and Judah. Let's read verse 16 again. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. Let me make this very clear. I'm not asking anybody to go home today and shave your head. What the prophet is encouraging the people of God to do is to humble themselves. Judgment is coming. He says, they shall go from you into exile. Assyria and Babylon are just around the corner. So while you can, repent. Humble yourself and return to God. Cast aside those idols, burn up the carved images, 
forsake the debauchery and pleasure-seeking of the moment and return to the God who called you by name. But as chapter 2 begins, Micah's call to repentance lands on deaf ears. Look with me there, the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. In these verses, the sin looks different, but its root is the same. There's no mention of idols or carved images, but the self-serving nature of man is still here. It's still present. And this time, the wealthy would use their riches, their power, their influence to take control and steal from those who were poor. They would loan money at high rates and then come to collect and take away your house and your inheritance. This was predatory lending in every sense of the word. Verse 1 tells us that this was also planned and, and intentional. These folks weren't just taking advantage of an opportunity in the spur of the moment to make a quick buck. This was premeditated. They were devising wickedness. And in verses 3 through 5, we see God's response. Look there with me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take a taunt song against you and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you, have, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Here we see the power and strength and holiness of God on on full display. He cannot tolerate their wickedness and their schemes because he is holy. So he devises disaster that they cannot escape. God is completely sovereign over all things and there's no way out for them. And the language that Micah uses here is interesting. Remember, back to verse 1 of chapter 2, the people are devising wickedness. But God's response is to devise disaster on their wickedness. He cannot leave it unpunished and his punishment will be disastrous. Verse 4 says, the song they'll sing is, we are utterly ruined. God will give over their land to the apostate, to the unbeliever. You have to see the irony here. This people are living in the land that was their portion, the promised land that God had given them generations before. But what did they do? They took advantage of their weaker brothers to hoard more land and money and possessions for themselves. They devised wickedness, so God devised retribution. The land that was their portion will be handed over to pagans. And one of the reasons that God is bringing disaster on the nations of Judah and Israel is for worshiping just like the pagans. It's almost like God is saying, hey, you want to be like them? Here you go. I'm going to let them come in and take over. You want to worship their gods, live by their laws? Good luck. You want it? You got it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God's own people, whom he had chosen and called out as his own possession, had abandoned him. They walked away. And the entire first chapter and a half of Micah is a warning, a warning to turn around. It's not too late. But then something interesting happens. Look with me at verses 6 to 11. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. 
Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. So while Micah has been preaching about the coming judgment of God against this nation, there are false teachers speaking against him. Micah has the very word of God to warn the people and call them to turn away from their idolatry and selfishness. But then these other voices are saying that everything's going to be okay. Don't say those hard things. We don't need to talk about that. We don't want to offend anyone with talk of of judgment or hardship. In 2 Timothy, Paul describes a similar environment. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These false teachers were feeding the people exactly what they wanted. They wanted the appearance of godliness. They wanted to maintain the idea of being God's people, but they had no intention of repenting of their sin and actually living as God's people. Micah says the people only want to hear, eat, drink, and be merry. I'll preach to you wine and strong drink. Don't worry about judgment. We're God's chosen people. Surely he's going to save us, right? They wanted to believe that their history could save them. They wanted to believe that their reputation could save them. They wanted to believe that there was an easy way. They wanted to be God's people without giving up their idols. But look at what Micah says about them in verse 8. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. They were trying to straddle the fence. They wanted the blessings and promises of being God's people, but they also wanted to participate in the worship of these other gods. But here God calls them an enemy. They're still his people. He's going to keep his promises, but they are opposed to him. They are fighting against him. They are disobeying his law by taking advantage of their brothers, driving out women and children, stripping the very clothes off their brothers' back. What about us? Are we living our lives with one foot on the path of following God and the other serving ourselves? Are you and I completely comfortable acknowledging, that, acknowledging God with our mouth but living a life that has nothing to do with being his people? I'm afraid many of us are like the ones Jesus described in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We say the right things, but where's your heart this morning? Has your love and devotion to God grown cold as you chase after the fleeting passions of this world? Have you forgotten what God has saved you from? Are you so consumed by and drawn to your selfish desires that you have forsaken the call of God to be his people? The message of warning to the nations of Israel and Judah is a message of warning to us too. There are probably people in this room who thought you've been a part of God's family for a long time. Your name might be on the roll. You may have served on committees or visited people in the hospital. You may have volunteered to hand out food or or help rebuild after a storm, all in the name of God. But doing things for God doesn't take the place of resting in what God has done for you. That brings us to the second message of this section of Micah. It's a message of hope. 
Look with me at verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Micah has spent 27 out of 29 verses in the first two chapters issuing a message of warning. But here at the end of chapter 2, he offers a glimmer of hope. Judgment is still coming. Assyria and Babylon are still knocking on the door, ready to conquer these two nations. The northern kingdom will fall completely before too long, and the southern kingdom will be taken into exile. There's no avoiding this judgment of God. However, Micah tells the people here that God will surely assemble all of you. He will gather a remnant. These people are not spared from the exile, but God promises that some will be saved out of it. Notice the change in language here, too. Who's doing all the work? Up to this point, we hear Micah laying out all, the na- all that the nations had been doing. How they were trying to straddle the fence, claiming God but living for themselves. How they were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. But what's the response? Micah doesn't tell them to stop their wickedness. Micah points to God. God says here in verse 12, I will assemble you. I will gather the remnant. I will set them together. You guys are like sheep. You're a noisy multitude, but God is the one who can gather wayward sheep. He is the true shepherd. He opens the breach and goes before them. Notice here in verse 13, the shepherd is also their king. This is the first reference in Micah to this coming king who will free his people from bondage. He will rescue them from exile. He will restore them to God. And in these two verses, Micah gives the people a message of hope but it's not hope in themselves. It's hope in God. He will provide a shepherd king to lead his people out of exile and into freedom with him. You're probably already familiar with some of these verses, but one of the primary ways Jesus is revealed to us is as our shepherd. Twice in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Hebrews 13, 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. A verse of of comfort that we often hear is Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb of God will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. In John chapter 4, Jesus offers a drink of living water to the woman at the well, and he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, our shepherd king, leads us to drink from a fountain that never runs dry and wells up in us to eternal life. This is the hope we find in Christ. This is the message of hope that Micah is declaring to the people. Where are you this morning? Are you standing with one foot in the world trying to do your own thing? Are you living for yourself? Can we summarize your life by the motto, eat, drink, and be merry? All that matters is temporary satisfaction. The call for you this morning is to come and drink of this living water. Carved images, idols, even the idol of self will one day all fade away. God, who is our shepherd king, will reign forever. 
Lay down your selfishness, lay down your idols, and take up his cross. Deny yourself and let him make you new today. What about us as a church? Are we so focused on our own preferences and comfort that we've forgotten about this good news? Are we more concerned with the temperature of the room or the comfort of the chairs we sit in that we've forgotten how good God truly is? Have we forgotten what he saved us from? Have we forgotten the mission that he's given us to tell the world about Jesus, our shepherd king? Here's the deal, church family. God does promise us rest. Can't talk about God, our shepherd, without mentioning Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, right? We long for that rest, but that rest right now is for our souls. We don't have to strive to earn God's favor. We don't have to work to prove ourselves. Jesus has already accomplished the work for us on the cross. He laid down his life and said it is finished. He paid our debts. He's made us new. But he's also given us this message of hope, just like Micah. Who do you know that needs to hear it today? Who's that person in your office or in your family who's trying to walk the line just like these people were? The most loving and compassionate thing you could do today is call them up and tell them this message of hope. Take comfort in these final words from Micah 2. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Jesus, your king, has led the way. He goes before you. He has stood as your advocate and as your savior before God. He has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. Trust him with this. Be a messenger of hope. Share the good news about our good king. God is our shepherd king. He protects, he provides, he reigns. If that's true for you today, rejoice in this good news. If it's not true for you, come meet him. Let's pray.